Hi folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on Fat Burning Man, where we talk about real food and real results. Today's fun fact of the day, up until 2012, Starbucks used cochineal extract as red food coloring in six menu items. It's an ingredient made from crushed cochineal beetles and boiled in ammonia. Sounds good. All right, so this week's show is with a very often requested guest. His name is Chris Masterjohn, and he certainly knows his stuff. Uh, before we get there, I have a quick announcement. I'm actually teaching a class completely unrelated to, to fat loss or health on how to upgrade your productivity with uh, Ryan Lee, Brian Johnson, John Lee Dumas, Ari Mizell, and many, many more rock stars of getting things done. I'm doing that for in Theos, and Brian Johnson is the guy behind Philosopher's Notes. I've talked about that a few times on the show. I'm a big fan, uh, so it was really cool to have him on, all these experts on, to talk about uh, something more in the business space, which is you know another world that I come from and have a lot of fun playing in, to talk about productivity and how you can kick butt. So if you'd like to know more about that, then go to fatburningman.com, enter your best email address, and sign up for the newsletter, and I'll point you right to it. If you're a nerd like me, you're going to enjoy this week's show with Chris Masterjohn of The Daily Lipid, which I think is just one of the best names of a blog ever. We're going to be talking about why hexane is in our food, how to manage inflammation in your body, why you should avoid corn oil at all costs, and how to get all the nutrients you need to thrive. All right, let's go hang out with Chris. All right, folks, really excited to be here with a fan favorite. Mr. Chris Masterjohn is the man behind the most terrifically named blog of all time, The Daily Lipid. Chris has his PhD in nutritional science, is a frequent contributor to the Weston A. Price Foundation journal, Wise Traditions, and is an all-around brainiac. What's cooking, Chris? Thank you so much for having me on, Abel. I have to say my blog is sort of misnamed because I feel like I'm just delivering lots of broken promises by the title, which seems to imply that I should have something come out every day. <laughs> and it definitely doesn't do that. So. That's all good. As long as you're eating and talking about fat every day and, and, and living, <laughs> I think we're good. And this is actually something that, that I'm struggling right now because I'm, I'm writing a book. Um, and fat is something that just as a word is so problematic, right? Like I wish that there were another word in the English language that were as cozy and comfortable and short as the FAT, but like lipid doesn't quite do it. And Tri a lot triglyceride of triglyceride doesn't definitely triglyceride doesn't. definitely doesn't do it. <laughs> but um, fats are awesome. And and I, I feel like no matter how much we talk about that, people don't really get it. Let's talk about how, how great fat is for a second. Okay, sure. Well, fat is awesome in many ways. I mean, obviously, <laughs> too much body fat isn't something so we want. Th that's the little, problem, right? Little... Because like people think of like getting fat, and that's bad. But like fat itself, sure. Is awesome. But even body fat has a bad rap. I mean, right. people don't appreciate how much body fat contributes uh, to the nice curves in a woman's body, mm -hmm. or even to the cuddleability of a man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we want to. So even in those cases, we want to strike the right balance. Sure. Uh, but beyond body fat, uh, fat in our food is very important because it's delicious, it's uh, nutritious in a numerous, uh, excuse me, a number of ways, both by carrying fat soluble vitamins and also by assisting the absorption of fat soluble vitamins from other foods. So if you eat a salad, for example, 
you are eating a lot of vegetables that have a lot of nutrients, some of which are fat-soluble, and we're not going to absorb those fat-soluble nutrients from the vegetables unless we add fat to the salad. Uh, so fat in our diet is important both to nourish us, to make the, the food taste good, to make the food uh, satiating so yeah. that we feel like we've eaten enough, uh, and to help us get nutrition from other foods. So what are your favorite fats? Uh, my favorite fats to add, you mean, to the diet? Sure, yeah. Uh, my favorite fats would be, well, first of all, we have to start with the fats related to reproduction because it's very important to uh, nourish our young and therefore fats like butter fat and egg yolks happen to be some of the most nutritious fats because butter fat is a component of milk which is meant to nourish a young animal and egg yolks are a component of an egg which is meant to become a young animal and because nutrition is so important in those early developmental stages those fats are particularly rich in fat soluble vitamins now of course the other fats if we think about the fat of land animals for example uh, those are going to be highly dependent on the ways that the animals are raised. Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, lard from pigs, tallow from beef animals, uh, chicken fat, et cetera, et cetera, all these different fats, uh, those are going to be highly nutritious if the animals are raised in the fresh air and sunshine, eating their natural diets, which usually has the major component as grass, uh, in some cases also insects and other things the animal would forage for. And if that grass and those insects and those other foods that are natural components of the animal's diets are raised in very rich soil, that's what's going to be the primary determinant of the fat-soluble vitamin content of those fats. And then for animals that are not ruminants, which basically is the animals that are not red meat animals, mm -hmm. so pigs and chickens, for example, are not ruminants. The fatty acid composition is going to be highly dependent on what the animals are eating. And so if those animals are fed a lot of grains and vegetable oils, it's going to be very, uh, the fat's going to be a lot closer to what we would expect from s new modern oils like soybean oil and safflower oil and corn oil and so on. Whereas if you look at pigs and chickens that are raised in the Pacific Islands where a coconut is a major part of their diet, their fat actually looks a lot like coconut fat. Hmm. So with those animals, it's especially important that they're eating their natural, traditional diets uh, because if they're not, not only is the fat less nutritious, but it also is less reflective of what we would consider a traditional and high-quality fatty acid composition. Mm -hmm. Now, there are also plant oils that I think are very good. There's Coconut oil and cocoa butter and red palm oil, those are good fats from the tropics. More temperate regions, we have olive oil. I really like macadamia nut oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some other oils that I would say are kind of in between that are pretty traditional, like peanut oil, for example, uh, sesame oil. And what I would want to avoid are the very modern oils like corn oil, cottonseed oil, and soybean oil and canola oil and things like that. Would you mind talking a little bit about corn oil? Because I think a lot of us in the in the uh, you know ancestral community are very familiar with this, but some people listening might not be. Um, how do you get oil out of corn? <laughs> sure. 
Well, since you want to talk about corn oil, I should <laughs> let everyone know that on my personal Facebook, I updated my life status two days ago to Chris Master John started cooking everything in corn oil. And I updated my public uh, Facebook page to saying I now recommend I avoiding see. all raw foods and cooking everything in generous helpings of either corn oil, sunflower oil, or safflower oil, avoiding the high varieties and using the highest heat possible both to destroy the irritants in the cooked foods and also to make sure that the highest amount of these nutritious oils gets into the food because when you, uh, when you heat the food, you not only cause a variety of changes to the fat that of course are beneficial, uh, but you also get a lot more of that fat stuffed into the food. And of course, the reason that I published these two days ago is because it was April Fool's Day. Right, yeah. How much hate mail did you get for that? uh, This is really bad advice for a number of reasons. (laughs) Uh, So I'm not really an expert on how they make uh, vegetable oils. Sure, but let's talk about why is it bad. Uh, There's a a good one on canola oil, I think, which is probably a similar process on that show, I think it's How Things Are Made or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that is And you can find that on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, you know, if you have a really small seed, it's kind of hard to press it by, you know, olives, for example. You can just squish an olive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can put a bunch of olives in a vat and stomp on the olives and, and squeeze oil out of them. Uh, coconut oil, you can. it's relatively easy to squeeze. I mean, it's a process, but... Mm-hmm. You don't need a highly industrial setup to squeeze the oil out of a coconut. Uh, but in the case of corn and especially cotton seeds, I mean, compare, compare cotton seeds are very small. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things generally, not only do you need a very high, highly industrialized process just to squeeze the oil, but you also need some kind of solvent to get the full oil out of the leftover meal. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm actually not sure exactly uh, how the different oils differ. I know with soybean oil, it's almost always extracted with hexane. I'm mm-hmm. not sure about corn oil, yeah. just because corn oil is not that popular anymore anyway. Right. Uh, I mean, it's still used, but but soybean oil is actually really popular, and and almost all of the soybean oil on the market is extracted with hexane. Mm-hmm. And yum. And you know, then it's refined and bleached and deodorized. I don't know too much about those processes in the tech level of technical detail. Yeah. But in general, the higher the post-processing uh, after the solvent extraction, the more likely the hexane is to have evaporated. Of course, it's really toxic to inhale it. Uh, but we've uh, in my laboratory here. Uh, I shouldn't say my laboratory, but <laughs> laboratory I'm working in here. Sure. Uh, we have done some analysis of soy-based foods and there there's that it definitely seems like there's residual hexane in a lot of those Mm. so anyway it's kind of a nasty process you can avoid a lot of the issues with organic solvents if you look for cold pressed oils Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to get some other cold pressed oils rather than cold pressed soybean oil but you still have problems with those oils uh First of all, they're not very nutritious compared to traditional animal fats mm-hmm. uh, or compared to some of the tropical plant oils like palm oil, for example, is very high in vitamins. And also the just the fatty acid composition, the natural fatty acid composition 
of these oils, very high in polyunsaturated fatty acids. And those are something that we need, but not necessarily something that we want a lot of. Mm-hmm. And if, we, if you have a human that eats a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet and is forced to synthesize all of her or his own fat from the carbohydrate, that human, uh, like most other mammals, will synthesize a mix primarily of saturated and monounsaturated fatty acids. And that's because those are the fatty acids that we most need. Yeah. Uh, so we don't necessarily want to eat a high-fat diet forcing ourselves to consume a lot more polyunsaturated fatty acids than we would ever be able to own or get from the traditional oils that have always been parts of our diets. And then there's one worse thing about corn oil compared to, say, soybean oil or canola oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, corn oil and the non-hyaluric varieties of safflower oil and sunflower oil. So if it says on the ingredients just safflower oil and doesn't say hyaluric safflower oil, those oils are almost exclusively, at least in their polyunsaturated fatty acid or PUFA content, omega-6. Mm-hmm. And so with soybean oil or canola oil, these are not good oils, but you do have some omega-3 in there. And you might have a reasonable ratio, say 7 to 1 or 10 to 1. Whereas with corn oil or safflower oil, you're looking at something like 140 to 1. Uh, So it's very easy to become deficient in omega-3s from eating those extremely high omega-6 oils like corn oil. Which are also pro-inflammatory and, you know... which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if you were having a little bit of it and it came attached to a bunch of nutrition. But I think to summarize what you're saying, you're basically just getting a blast of highly inflammatory omega-6s in addition to, you know, potentially leftover hexane and, and you know, the after effects of being uh, well, de-gunned. I, I wanna, de- I, since you brought up inflammation, sure. I want to uh, I want to inject something Please. Here. Um, so I, one of my pet peeves is when people try to talk about pro-inflammatory things being bad and anti-inflammatory things being good. All right, because let's rant I on feel that. like inflammation is an essential process that is the reason that we're all alive today, and I think it gets a bad rap. And I think if you want to be pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, you are taking sides in a homeostatic balance that you don't understand. And homeostasis is all about balance. Mm -hmm. And so if your body's not trying to take sides, I assure you that. And if you're trying to take sides in that war, uh, we should reflect a little bit about about that. And so, you know, back in the 1990s, for example, where a lot of the ideas were developed about omega-6 fatty acids being inflammatory and omega-3 fatty acids being anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. the we did not understand that when inflammation stops, there is an active process of resolving the inflammation. All we knew was you could initiate inflammation and then we kind of thought that uh, it's supposed to just dissipate. Mm-hmm. And if it's not dissipating, it's because we have too many pro-inflammatories. And the focus of omega-3s being anti-inflammatory was on EPA, which is a fatty acid that's especially high in fish oils, mm-hmm. being able to inhibit the initiation of inflammation by basically interfering with the metabolism of arachidonic acid, or AA, 
which is the corresponding omega-6 fatty acid. So the thought was that if since arachidonic acid is the omega-6 fatty acid that's used to initiate inflammation, what we want to do is get enough EPA to block that function. Hmm. And the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, meaning most over-the-counter anti-inflammatories and some prescription anti-inflammatories, are all based on blocking the enzymes that metabolize arachidonic acid to these supposedly pro-inflammatory molecules that initiate inflammation. So all of this focus was on interfering with the initiation of inflammation and all those things were called anti-inflammatories. And now this is the school of thought that high-dose fish oil came out of mm. because the high-dose fish oil is supposed to supply enough EPA to block the function of arachidonic acid. And what the high-dose fish oil is doing is essentially the exact same thing as the over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs. When you take it – now, you those fatty acids you want in small quantities and that's a nutritional effect. Mm -hmm. But when you're taking high-dose fish oil, you're relying on a pharmacological effect that's essentially the same as taking over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs. Now, the problem with that is uh, over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs or COX inhibitors are – that's that's not all of those drugs, but uh, the bulk of them are COX inhibitors. Sure. COX is the enzyme that metabolizes arachidonic acid. Anyway, uh, those are all tied to especially to digestive distress and to some degree to autoimmune disorders. Mm -hmm. And we also know going back to the 19th century that cod liver oil, which is a form of fish oil that happens to be very rich in fat-soluble vitamins – was very helpful when used in small quantities, but when used in huge quantities could also lead to severe digestive problems and, and possibly to some autoimmune disorders. Mm -hmm. Very similar side effects between the over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs and high doses of marine oils. So why is that? Well, in the past decade, what we've discovered is that uh, inflammation resolution is an active process that the body deliberately engages in. And there are two raw materials used for the process of resolving inflammation. The first is arachidonic acid, the supposed inflammatory bad guy. Sure. Again, the COX enzymes, the ones that are inhibited by anti, so-called anti-inflammatory drugs, those enzymes metabolize arachidonic acid during inflammation resolution in order to resolve inflammation. So what we now know is that these over-the-counter so-called anti-inflammatory drugs interfere with the initiation of inflammation and interfere with the resolution of inflammation. And the same is probably true of the high-dose fish oil, which is designed to mimic the effects of those drugs. Mm. So by being anti-inflammatory and deciding that instead of helping the body resolve inflammation, we're going to be against an essential body process, we've also forced ourselves against the essential body process of resolving inflammation. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that when we rely on these drugs or pharmacological effects of 
foods that are used in unreasonable doses to mimic the effects of those drugs is that we interfere with the process we wanted to interfere with and then we interfere with processes that we didn't even know about. Yeah. And the result is that we end up with more inflammation using the anti-inflammatory drugs because we didn't understand that starting inflammation is a good thing when it's targeted correctly mm -hmm. and resolving inflammation is a good thing. So I think what we want to focus on is providing the body with all the raw materials that it needs to both initiate correctly target and resolve inflammation and taking away any possible inhibitors of the body's natural processes in doing that. So I think what we want is the omega-6 fatty acid, arachidonic acid, which is found especially in egg yolks and liver, mm -hmm. to a lesser extent in other terrestrial animal fats, especially if they're actually just to a lesser extent in other terrestrial animal fats. And we could also synthesize to some degree from plant oils. Mm -hmm. And then we also want DHA, which is an omega-3 fatty acid that also is critical in the resolution process for inflammation. And that's found to some degree in fish oils and other marine fats and also in uh, grass, other terrestrial animal fats, especially if they're grass-fed. And again, we can synthesize a little bit from, from plant oils. But we also want to get rid of these drugs like COX inhibitors, the over-the-counter so-called anti-inflammatory drugs. And we also want to get rid of approaches like high-dose fish oil where we're consuming way more than we would otherwise consume of those fatty acids in the diet. And then finally, I think we need to clear up our language a little bit mm -hmm. and stop talking about things as pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory. Stop talking about inflammation like it's a bad thing yeah. and instead start talking about how can we get the body to naturally regulate, correctly target that process of inflammation. Very cool. Thank you for that. So I, I'm sure a lot of people are... Thank you for listening to me. That was a lot of <laughs> So I, I'm sure a lot of people now, and this happens all the time, this is one of the things that always makes this process so exciting uh, of, of learning more about nutrition and biochemistry and the rest of it. I think a lot of people felt like they had um, uh, omega-3s kind of figured out at this point and, and how oh, to yeah. work that out with omega-6s and what to eat, how to supplement. Now you've probably screwed all that up for, for oh, a lot yeah. of people who are listening. <laughs> what Where does that leave us? What are you, uh, what are you eating? How often? And, and how are you uh, supplementing or, or how should you? Sure. So I, I think, I mean, my general rules for eating are first rule, get rid of all the junk food mm -hmm. or get rid of most of the junk food. I, but I, I, I don't think that means don't eat anything that tastes good or don't eat, ever eat desserts. Yeah. But I think if, if you can try to make your own desserts out of natural foods, use natural whole food sweeteners like honey, raw honey, if it, if it can be used, if it's not a cooked dessert uh, or or even you know unrefined sugars and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that that would be really good. And of course, you want to moderate the desserts, but you don't want to gung, go gung ho and deprive yourself of sure. pleasure. Uh, but you know, you want to pursue a balance too. Uh, so I think you know, not every meal should be some gourmet meal where you're mixing every possible palatable thing that you can find and every spice to make it as delicious as possible. Mm -hmm. I would say eat a balance between more utilitarian foods and more gourmet foods. Eat more 
eat more well-prepared, really, really palatable and tasty gourmet dishes with desserts when you're with other people and you have mm -hmm. social functions. And if you're just getting up in the morning or you're eating lunch when you're working, use a more utilitarian, uh, simple approach to what you're eating. I would say, you know, eat, tend towards eating several balanced meals per day. Mm -hmm. uh, most people are probably going to do best on three balanced meals per day. That should always include some protein, some fat, and some carbohydrate. Don't go to extreme gorging on one or the other of those. Don't yeah. go to extreme restrictions on one or the other of those. Mm -hmm. I know some people really like intermittent fasting, but just like exercise, fasting is a stress. Mm -hmm. And stress is really – stress like inflammation is not a bad thing. It's all about how you deal uh, with it right. and how, how much of it you have and whether the cumulative stress is something that you can rest and recover from easily. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, know your body and, and don't, you know, if you feel like you feel good when you're intermittent fasting and it's not stressing your body out, then use it in moderation. Uh, but don't force yourself to do it if it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And, and again, don't, and I, you know, a lot of people say don't snack. I feel like a better advice is, you know, if you are not hungry, don't snack. Yes. But, but, you know, some people just have real adrenal burnout and they need to uh, inch their way toward being able to rest from eating between meals. And for those people, you know, if I think it's, it's, it's better to eat something if not eating is going to interfere with your productivity, interfere with your mood, uh, or interfere with your basic mental functioning. Yeah. So if you so never force yourself into an eating pattern like three meals a day or intermittent fasting or no snacking or anything like that if your body doesn't respond well to it uh, but again you know don't don't take out the potato chips just because uh you're hanging out watching something on TV and that's what you <laughs> hang out that's what you do when you hang out watch something on TV yeah. uh, you know only eat because you're hungry yeah. Same thing with water, uh, you know, only drink because you're thirsty. If you have a long established habit of gout, like gorging on water, uh, then you might want to cut out the water for a few days and try to reclaim your natural sense of thirst. Hmm. And then, you know, don't force yourself to not drink something if you're thirsty, but don't drink something out of habit. Drink it because you're thirsty. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think following all those rules are really and cutting out the refined foods are really the most important things. But then on top of that, I would say try to try to get rid of the modern oils and use the types of fats and oils we've been talking about today. Try to shift over from factory farmed animal products to grass-fed pastured animal products. If you use dairy, try to shift over from regular commercial pasteurized dairy to grass-fed uh, unpasteurized dairy you know, higher quality products. And of course, try to include some liberal sources of really nutrient dense foods, especially you try to work in some organ meats or cod liver oil, for example, is a, it can be a substitute for liver and sunshine if you don't get outside much and you can't tolerate the taste of liver. Yeah. Uh, but try to work in some organ meats, try to work in some bones, the traditional way that all of our grandparents made soup mm -hmm. by by utilizing the whole animal, the bones, the connective tissue through soup stocks, and uh, and, and other 
delicious ways to use those gelatinous ingredients. Those would be my primary rules. I'm sure there's lots of things people could do to uh, tweak uh, any of those in more specific ways. But I think if you can follow most or all of those ideas, you're probably on a pretty good path towards uh, keeping yourself healthy. Totally. Now, you mentioned cod liver oil. That's something that, that I certainly take. Can we talk a little bit about why that's important and, and why people sure. should be uh, thinking about it as, as kind of an interesting thing to include in their supplementation strategy? Sure. So cod liver oil has always been used since we've understood nutrition because it's a highly convenient way to get vitamins A and D. And it's and now that now that we've understood omega-3 fatty acids is important over the last decade or two, uh, it's also become seen as a source of those omega-3 fatty acids mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier. Uh, cod liver oil was used, according to John Hughes Bennett, who traveled the world in the 19th century to survey the traditional use of cod liver oil and folk remedies and also by what he called medical men, uh, it was used time immemorial, he said, in many different European countries. So as far back as the cultural memory could go, cod liver oil had been used. Uh, we know in Britain, the way it started was in the 1700s. Uh, for centuries, they had used the residue of livers, cod livers that were left in barrels that would contain kind of a dirty form of cod liver oil that was used as a bomb for the treatment of rheumatism, which is a kind of an umbrella term that we no longer use anymore mm -hmm. for connective tissue disorders with autoimmune components. Mm -hmm. And at the time, they were just all kind of grouped under the term rheumatism. And so it would be used as a topical bomb. I don't know if there was good evidence that it was effective, but what happened was this one uh, patient cured herself by deciding to eat her topical bomb on, on two occasions. So she started eating it and her rheumatism went away mm. and then it came back and she started eating it again and it went away. And so uh, this was at the uh, Manchester Infirmary and they, they looked into this and there was a physician named Percival who basically uh, not not in the in the form of a randomized controlled trial that we, we would use now, but uh, on more of a case by case basis, used compared the effect of eating the bomb uh, that bomb to a variety of different uh, what we would call placebos now, mm -hmm. and found that it it had a unique efficacy, and so he added it to the pharmacopoeia, and thereafter the infirmary started using fifty to sixty gallons per year, I think it was, of cod liver oil. And that's, uh, that's a lot of cod liver oil. <laughs> yeah, it is. And then in the 1800s, it became in the mid 1800s, it became known as a treatment for tuberculosis. Mm. And the Royal Brompton Hospital, again in England, found that the number of people who deteriorated or died were cut almost in half, and the number number of people who completely recovered uh, from pulmonary tuberculosis has tripled after mm -hmm. they started using cod liver oil as a treatment. Wow. Which is, by the way, around the time that the long-term eradication of tuberculosis mortality disappeared, mm -hmm. uh, because there was a very long-term trend that began around. Uh, well, we don't have data that goes back much farther. It went back at. It started going down at least 
around the time that they started using cloud level world. We don't know if it was already in decline. But in any case, if you just plot the data, there's a straight line that declines from that time through the mid 20th century. And none of the, neither the identification of the bacterium that causes tuberculosis, nor the chemical treatments, nor the vaccine, which was only released in, uh, which was released in Europe, but never in the United States. Tuberculosis was eradicated in, in both cases, mm -hmm. uh, with or without the vaccine. But all of those things were introduced way towards the end of that decline. And cod liver oil as a treatment was introduced towards the beginning. So I do think that it probably played a role in that long-term decline. Uh, but then in the early 20th century, it became known as a, as a source of fat-soluble vitamins. We didn't know about the fat-soluble vitamins before that, mm -hmm. but we knew that cod liver oil could prevent or treat xerophthalmia, which is a vitamin that we now know is a vitamin A deficiency disease of the eye, where the tissues lose the mucus-producing cells and the eye becomes dry and vulnerable to bacterial infection and the combination of secondary infection and the dryness leads to ulceration, which can ultimately lead to permanent blindness if it's not fixed. So, so cod liver oil prevented and cured that. It also prevented and cured rickets, which is overproduction of over uh, undermineralized matrix of bone and leads in growing children leads to a deformity of bowed legs. And we now know that that is a result of vitamin D deficiency. Mm -hmm. So cod liver oil played a critical role in the discovery that vitamins A and D were two different vitamins mm -hmm. because if you heated it, uh, you would destroy its ability to cure xerophthalmia but not rickets. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was evidence that they, these were two different vitamins that were preventing and treating these diseases. And then also when they used butter, which was rich in vitamin A and poor in vitamin D, probably mm -hmm. because the cows weren't getting a lot of sunshine, uh, they found that cod liver oil could prevent, if it wasn't heated, could prevent or treat both diseases, but butter would only treat the eye disease. So those two, ex those two experiments were the landmark experiments that gave us the knowledge that vitamins A and D are two totally different things. Yeah. Uh, then through the 1920s and 40s, it was found that cod liver oil could almost obliterate the bedside fever that would kill women after they gave birth to children, mm. uh, radically decrease mortality from measles, and even prevent infectious diseases such as the common cold. Uh, and the consumption of cod liver oil increased 25-fold between 1920 huh. and 1940 wow. from 2 million pounds per year imported into the U.S. to 50 million pounds per year. Then, uh, after World War II, we came up with antibiotics. People forgot about preventing infections with mm. cod liver oil, and its memory fell by the wayside. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting study of uh, medical doctors in England that found a few decades ago that most of the doctors remem re remembered getting cod liver oil as a child, and none of them knew why. And then more wow. recently, that about a third of doctors remember getting cod liver oil as a child, and none of them knew why. Mm -hmm. So the medical people, the people who most understood and promoted cod liver oil just before World War II, mm -hmm. very soon had no idea what its significance was after World War II, even while they remembered getting it as a child. Right. And now, even getting it as a child is something that's fading from the memory simply because uh, we we no longer understand its benefits. But now it's on yeah. a comeback, as evidenced by you asking me about it on this sure. show. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and so there are a few options. Blue Ice is the one that, that I know a lot of people in the Weston A. Price community kind of lean toward. 
are, uh, but you mentioned unheated, and a lot of them actually are heated, uh, other brands, right? And some of the ones that are popping up everywhere. Uh, what would you recommend to people who are looking for a solid cod liver oil uh, that's going to help them? Yeah, right now I'm using the Blue Ice fermented cod liver oil. Mm -hmm. There's another new option that's come on the scene called uh, Corganic. Mm. And uh, right now there's uh, some some disagreement between people. Theirs is unfermented. The Blue Ice is fermented. Okay. There's some back and forth in different communities about which one is better and so on. I have no interest in taking sides on that, yeah. but I do think that those are probably the two uh, cod liver oils that are high vitamin and minimally processed mm -hmm. that are on the market. And the fermented cod liver oil is closer to what they were using in the 19th century and the unfermented cod liver oil is closer to what they were using in the 20th century. It seems like cod liver oil had convincing benefits in the 19th and 20th centuries. So uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that those are probably both very good products. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if we studied it a lot more, we'd find out that they have different utilities. But in all honesty, not you know, we need a lot more research on cod liver oil because it was, it was heavily researched until World War II, and then net, net, the post World War II era is when all of our scientific methodologies right. and technologies have advanced, and that's also the era where we've completely forgotten about cod liver oil. Yeah. So what we really need to do is to bring all the advances in science back to those traditional foods and move forward that way. Very cool. Um, so we have a little bit of time left. Do you want to, you, you covered vitamins A and D. Can you get into K a little bit as well? Sure. So vitamin K is sort of the third synergistic partner of the of vitamins A and D. Uh, there, of course, if you think about the fat soluble vitamins, we tend to talk about them according to their chemical properties, call them fat soluble. Vitamin E is in there too. But vitamin E functionally is an antioxidant. It's more involved with the vitamin C and its function. Mm -hmm. A, D, and K have very similar functions. All of them are used as raw materials to tell cells uh, how to express their genes, whether to turn a gene on or off or up or down. Uh, but vitamin K's best known function is is actually to activate proteins. And very often what the case is, is vitamins A and D are telling a cell, hey, you need to make this protein. And then vitamin K uh, it comes along and activates uh, that protein. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the end result is if we don't have the raw materials to to allow ourselves to communicate in response to their environment, they're not going to make the proteins. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have the vitamin K activating the proteins, the proteins are useless anyway. So we need these three to act together in a synergistic partnership. Now, all three vitamins do lots of other things, but where these interactions have been most uh, well studied is in the case of regulating where calcium is distributed in the body. Mm -hmm. And so that means that when we have these three together in balance, we're putting calcium into the bones and teeth, into the uh, into their, their extracellular matrix where they're providing structural support and also acting as kind of a reservoir that the body can tap into when it needs calcium in other places. Uh, but they're staying out of the soft tissues like the kidneys where ca calcium deposition can cause kidney stones mm -hmm. and the heart or blood vessels where it contributes to heart disease. And when they, when they are in the soft tissues in very small quantities, we also need magnesium to make sure that, they're, that the calcium is properly stored in specific compartments. Because when calcium is just running freely in a soft tissue cell, 
then it acts as a signal that causes things like uh, involuntary muscle spasms or, you know, you release calcium deliberately in your muscles when Mm -hmm. you contract them. So if if that calcium doesn't go back to be stored where it's supposed to be, you'll get involuntary muscle contractions. And something kind of similar can happen in nerve cells where you get involuntary, where you get nerve excitability or impulses when you shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, so magnesium is also a synergistic partner that's helping calcium go go where it's supposed to go. But anyway, the the last point about soft tissue calcification that we should keep in mind is that when we grow as growing children, we are gr- our bones are growing from cartilage growth plates. And although the bone is a calcified tissue, the cartilage is a soft tissue. Now what stops us from growing? It's when that soft tissue, the cartilage growth plate, becomes calcified. Mm -hmm. So preventing the cartilage growth plate from calcifying early is one of the primary determinants of how much a child will grow, or even in utero, whether the face properly develops, especially Mm -hmm. in the middle third and to some extent the lower third, so that how broad the cheeks are, whether there's enough room in the palate for all the teeth, Mm -hmm. whether you get the proper length of nose, all of those things can be determined by the interactions of these fat-soluble vitamins in utero. And then whether the person grows up into uh, a tall person, but not so tall that you have a tall, thin uh, kind of pencil shape, Mm -hmm. but a properly tall, but also adequately broad uh, person, that that ideal shape where we look at someone and we say, wow, they look really healthy. All those uh, and really functional, you know, if you don't have the proper development of the rib cage, you're not going to have adequate defense against respiratory infections. If you don't have the proper development of the nose and the sinus passages, you're going to wind up breathing through your mouth instead of your nose, which uh, is not good for the quality of air you're breathing, for your stress hormone production. So all of these things are highly influenced by the interactions of these three fat-soluble vitamins uh, during uh, childhood development. And then they go on to affect uh, our risk for osteoporosis and heart disease as we get older, uh, and then also through other means that we haven't really discussed, not so much through calcium, the risk of cancer and autoimmune diseases and things like that. So where are we going to get the vitamin K? Well, there's two kinds. K1 is found in leafy greens. K2 is found in animal fats and fermented foods. In general, I would say that uh, K2 is more effective at doing all the things we've been talking about than K1. But I also think that there's some overlap. And K1 does important things too. And and it's the main sources of it. Leafy green vegetables are good sources of lots of other things. Also, there's some controversy. There's different forms of K2. MK4, for example, is primarily found in unfermented animal products. MK7 is added to those animal products and also produced in other things like natto, which is a fermented soy food that's uh, popular in eastern Japan. Mm -hmm. My... There's a debate about MK4 versus MK7. MK4 is known to have unique functions in the body that are not shared by any other form. That's probably why animal bodies form it exclusively. So I think we definitely need our specific attention paid to it. But at the same time, my opinion is that we know very little about these. It's best to cover all your bases yeah. and just eat a broad selection of all those three categories of foods, leafy greens, fermented vegetable products and fermented animal products both and the traditional animal fats especially when they're 
raised properly out in the fresh air and sunshine, eating pasture and foraging. Speaking my language. I love it. Uh, we're out of time, Chris, but before awesome. we go, why don't we tell uh, folks what you're working on now and uh, where they can find you? Sure. Well, you can, I mean, the best way to keep up with all my stuff is to subscribe to my blog, The Daily Lipid. That's at blog.cholesterolandhealth.com. There's hyphens in between the words, so blog.cholesterol-and-health.com. Honestly, if you just Google Chris Masterjohn, The Daily Lipid, that's probably even easier <laughs> than typing that into the search bar. Yeah. You can subscribe by RSS feed or through email. Uh, and that's that's good because even though most of the things that I publish aren't actual posts on the Daily Lipid, I cross-link on the Daily Lipid to everything else I do. So I have another blog, Mother Nature Obeyed, on the Weston A. Price site, but I post that on the Daily Lipid. When I publish articles in Wise Traditions, the quarterly journal of the Weston A. Price Foundation, I post links to those on the Daily mm -hmm. Lipid. Uh, when I do something like this, I'll post a link to it on the Daily Lipid. So go, just going there is how you can best keep up with all my stuff. If you go to the main site of cholesterolandhealth.com, lots of free information about cholesterol. Very good if you have someone who thinks cholesterol is really bad. Say, hey, check out this site. Yeah. And also some special reports where I, where I do charge uh, a fee for the distribution of the report. It's kind of like buying a magazine or something like that. Uh, but that has some pretty technical, very detailed articles on essential fatty acids and uh, natural plant toxins that can impair the function of the thyroid hormone. And then like everyone else who's hip, which – is no no longer hip to say because it's come kind of from a long time ago. But I I do enjoy irony from time to time, so I'll use it. So like everyone else who's hip, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so if you want to catch up with, uh, although you know, I, anyway, yeah. So you can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Um, but I I you know I post everything that I do there and also add some stuff. And on Facebook, I, I, I like to, uh, I hate the word meme. So I'm going to say I post pictures that say things yeah. on, uh, on my Facebook. But anyway, uh, I suggest, I suggest if you really want to make sure you don't miss anything, subscribe to my blog because you know, it's easy to miss things on Facebook and Twitter if you're not keeping up with your news feed. And Facebook is always finding ways to make sure that not everyone sees everything unless you give them money. So, <laughs> so anyway, you can find me in all those places, but kind of the center of it all is my blog, The Daily Lipid. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. This is fun. I'll, I'll work on my brevity. Oh, it's all good. Everyone was taking notes frantically the whole time, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks right, so much for coming on. I would, yeah, I would, I would love to have you on again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Fat Burning Man Show. If you'd like free fat burning tips, muscle building goodies, as well as a free ebook and video course, head on over to fatburningman.com and enter your best email and I'll shoot those right over to you. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook, I'm at facebook.com forward slash fatburningman. And on Twitter, my handle is fatburnman. Got some killer shows on the way, but in the meantime, be well, and I'll be talking to you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.